The year 1910 may be taken as a convenient date to mark the coming of age of the aeroplane as a practical vehicle. The automobile had recently invaded the world's highways. Now the aeroplane arrived to transport passengers and cargo across what Cayley calls that uninterrupted navigable ocean that comes to the threshold of every man's door. Unfortunately, within a few years the flying machine was obliged to go to war. But, ironically enough, it was warfare that led to its rapid development and to that heralding event of the future, the first direct transatlantic flight by Alcock and Brown in 1919. In this program you will hear Sir Harold Roxby Cox, a past president of the Royal Aeronautical Society, speaking about the airframe. It has well been said that if the pilot is the soul of an aircraft, the engine is its heart. It is on engines that Major George Bullman, for many years in charge of engine development at the Air Ministry, will speak. The soul of the aeroplane could not be in better hands than those of Sir Geoffrey de Havilland, test pilot and designer, one of the greatest figures in British aviation. Sir Geoffrey. I built my first aeroplane in a shed off the Pullham Road, and I tried it out in the country before I had learnt to fly. That first flight ended quickly in a crash. I and a friend who had helped me gathered the wreckage together and from the experience gained, built an improved version. This was more successful, and after a few weeks of practice, I was able to fly with some confidence. But by then, money was getting low. This was in 1910. I heard that the Royal Aircraft Factory at Farnborough might want an aeroplane, and eventually they bought mine for 400 pounds, and offered me a job as test pilot and part-time designer. This early test flying was largely a matter of pilot's personal opinion. Very few instruments were available, a crude airspeed indicator, an uncertain compass, a rev counter, and an altimeter. And the aeroplanes were unstable and had to be flown all the time. I mean, you had to control them all the time. The first successful stable aeroplane was the factory-designed B-2C, developed from the earlier B-2. On this one could fly hands and feet off indefinitely. This B-2C was used in large numbers by the Royal Flying Corps, and it was a good aeroplane, but a bad fighting machine because of its great stability made it slow to manoeuvre. At the Royal Aircraft Factory, we were not supposed to design new aeroplanes, but were allowed to reconstruct old or crashed aircraft. We overcame this difficulty by building totally new aeroplanes by reconstructing them from a landing wheel, or even bolts from an old aeroplane. In this way, during my four, four years at Farnborough, we designed and built several different types of aeroplanes, including pusher and tractor biplanes, single-seat scouts, a canard or tail-first biplane, and a few other novel types. From all this, much useful experience was gained. Just before the 1914 war, I was asked by Holt Thomas 
a great believer in aviation, to join him in the aircraft manufacturing company as his chief designer. And it was there that we started the, the Haviland series of aeroplanes. Personally, I had a great belief in the potency of a high-speed day bomber, which would be fast enough to avoid engagement with enemy fighters. In 1916, high-powered engines were becoming available, and the idea became possible. So we embarked on the design of the two-seat DH-4, with what was, and for those days, a high wing loading. And it was powered by a 330-horse Rolls-Royce Eagle engine. Incidentally, after the war, the DH-4 was converted to carry two passengers in an enclosed cabin, and it was one of these aircraft that started the world's first regular airline by flying from London to Paris in August 1919. But the development of a new aircraft obviously depends largely on the development of reliable engines, and no one is more fitted to deal with the subject than my old friend George Bullman who was for many years in charge of engine development at the Air Ministry. Major Bullman. At the beginning of the 1914 war, we had to rely largely on the French designs of Gnome, Lerone and Clerget, all at 80 to 110 horsepower, and all rotary. That is, the single-throw crankshaft was stationary, around which spun and cooled themselves the seven or nine cylinders set out like a starfish, weighing some two and a half pounds per horsepower. In 1916, the French Hispano-Suiza eight-cylinder engine began its magnificent service, and Rolls-Royce brought out their first 12-cylinder Falcon and Eagle engines of 250 and 360 horsepower. They established themselves in the forefront of world aviation they've maintained ever since. In 1919, the Vickers Vime, with two Rolls-Royce Eagles, crossed the Atlantic from Newfoundland to Ireland with Alcock and Brown in 16 hours. Another Vime took Ross and Keith Smith from England to Australia in 29 heroic days. In the same year, the British airship R-34, with five Sunbeam 275-horsepower Maori engines, flew to America and back with some 30 men aboard. In those early days, the engine was required only to keep the aeroplane airborne, with only the accessories for its own operation. But as time went on, the engine became the complete power plant of the aircraft, providing electric generators for lighting and radio, air pumps for cabin pressurizing, hydraulic pumps for retractable undercarriage operation, etc., all tucked in to minimize drag, a matter of increasing importance, as flight speeds went up. The engine, too, had to have an automatic device, which was created by Farnborough, to weaken the carburetor fuel flow with altitude, as atmospheric pressure falls with height. For the same reason, in the 1920s, the supercharger came in to maintain power at altitude. This supercharger was normally a centrifugal fan, turning up to 20,000 revolutions per minute, its operation controlled also automatically, to prevent the pilot from overboosting his engine low down. 
Then came the variable pitch air screw, acting rather like a motor car gearbox, allowing the engine to speed up on climb, and then reduce speed and level flight to greater efficiency. A new type engine takes some five years to mature from the first paper design to the point of production in quantity, with literally thousands of hours of experimental bench and test flying meanwhile. Then, if it is favoured by the designers of the new aircraft, it may have a useful life of 12 to 15 years. The reputation of British aero engines owes much, I think, to the unique partnership built up over the years between the industry of never more than five firms responsible for their own designs, imbued always with intense competition between them, and the Air Ministry, the Royal Air Force, as the prime user, the umpire, and the dispenser of government contracts, with the RAE Farnborough always contributing to both with fundamental research and independent advice. Having been myself a small catalytic element in that partnership of 30 years, I can say, what fun it was. But in step with engine development came progress in the structural side of aircraft, on which Sir Harold Roxby Cox can speak from his experience starting from 1918. While Geoffrey de Havilland was building his aeroplanes at the Royal Aircraft Factory, Farnborough, I was a schoolboy, building model gliders. Machines like those which de Havilland was building, and those of the other great pioneers like Handley Page, the Short Brothers, Rowe and Cody, were the machines with which we were approaching the First Great War. They were, basically, frameworks of wood, braced with wires and covered with fabric, frail enough structures with which to fight. Nevertheless, in those four war years, 1914 to 1918, the fighters and reconnaissance machines from Farnborough, the great bombers developed by Handley Page, the outstanding fighters like the Sopwith Pup, the SE-5, the Bristol Fighter, the French Newports and Spats, and the German Fokkers, made the air as vital an element in the fighting of the war as the sea and the land. And flying in it were not only aeroplanes like these, but still bigger frameworks. Metal ones this time, the great rigid airships. The Zeppelins were, of course, at the outset, in advance of anything we had, but we caught up, and such was the impression that these great craft made, both in Germany and in Great Britain, that in the post-war years tremendous efforts were made to make the airship the long-distance air transport vehicle. Our hopes finally died in 1930 near Bove, where R101 crashed. Aeroplanes like those I have mentioned were, as George Bullman has said, terribly dependent on their engines. But they were, nevertheless, notable achievements as engineering structures. At the beginning of the war, they were designed as much perhaps by intuition as by science, but the war itself was a tremendous stimulus to engineering design. At the end of it, methods for calculating the strength of these frameworks were highly developed. We knew, reasonably accurately, how the aerodynamic loads were distributed over the surfaces. 
we knew approximately how the load distribution changed as the flying attitude of the aircraft changed. We knew how to take account of the multiplication of these loads which occurred when the aeroplane was subjected in manoeuvres to high accelerations. We could determine the stresses which these heavy loads produced in the wooden longerons, the struts and spars, the steel wires and the metal joints of the structure. Wood, today, would seem a strange material of which to build an aeroplane, but in its day it was perfectly sound. It was usually spruce, very carefully chosen and tested, and we could depend upon its strength characteristics. I began to learn about these things myself when I joined the Austin Motor Company in 1918 and worked under John Kenworthy, a product of the great Farnborough Design Department. In 1919, we designed and built an aeroplane which is a little milestone in the history of aircraft structures, the Austin Whippet. Instead of wood and wire, its fuselage framework was entirely of steel tube, though it was still covered with fabric. This was one of the first of the post-war light aeroplanes. Steel and duralumin came more and more into the structural picture, and there they are today. But the formula has changed. The aeroplanes of today are great metal shells with their strength in their skins, and the framework and the romance has gone forever.